You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. Sunday. Again, we're going to talk about marriage. And I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. If you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to be looking at. Um, we're actually going to read pretty much the whole chapter from chapter verse 4 to verse 25. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 to verse 25. And if you don't have a Bible, we can, I think, throw the text on the screen for you. Genesis 2, starting in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God had made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man of the dust and the ground uh, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man and he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight of this good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to the water of the garden, and there it divided, and it became four rivers. And the name of the first was Pashan, and the one that flowed out of the whole land was Havilah, and there was gold, and the gold of the land was good, and Beldim and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gion, and the one that flowed from it was Cush, and the name of the third river was Tigris, that flows to the east of Assyria, and the fourth river was Euphrates. And then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat. For in it the day that you eat, you will surely die. Verse 18, The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone, and I will make a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave the names of all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon a man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you so much for the opportunity that we have now to dive into your word that is active and living and sharper than a two-edged sword. I pray that right now, through your spirit, that you will open our ears, our eyes, our hearts to see you, to feel you, to know who you are and what you have done for us and what you have called us to, and to believe that the things you have given us to do are for our good and your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I believe in love at first sight. Or at least I did that October morning at the Indian Mall at the Buckle whenever I met now my wife, Megan Hawley. Most of you know the story. Whenever Megan walked in, within the first 10 minutes of her being here or being in the Buckle, I told my boss, Todd Roscoe, that I believe this was the perfect woman and that she was going to make someone a perfect wife someday. 
and that I hoped I was the lucky husband. Now, uh, in a very non-creepy way, I then began to pursue her. Eventually, I wore her down, and I got her to go on a date with me. And here's what I noticed. That within the first time of us hanging out, that like all other women and men, she is imperfect. In fact, what I discovered is uh, on our <laughs> the very first time we were together in my car, my uh, Cutlass, Oldsmobile Cutlass, we had drove through McDonald's, which I know is like super romantic, right? And uh, we got some food, and I made some sort of joke. You know, we're sitting there. You know how it is on your first date, how awkward it is. Like, you're trying to get, like, food on you, and you're trying to, like, you know, be all proper. And I make her laugh, and literally, just, like, out comes this chewed-up piece of chicken nugget, just, like, <laughs> onto the dash, and just, like, splattered onto my Oldsmobile. I mean, just sitting there. And she was obviously horrified. I was disgusted myself. Um, but that was the beginning of a journey where we were just learning more and more about each other's imperfections. And when we got married, guess what? It didn't change. It just like went to the next level. Um, we discovered when we were married that the, the saying is true that though opposites often attract, they then attack. Right? And so if you know my personality and my wife, you know we are very different. Um, I'm a high D. I'm very driven. I like to always have like multiple tasks going and I want the tasks done yesterday. So I'm a very fast mover. She meanders. And so we'll just be like walking and she's like, ah, oh, butterfly and just like wander off or whatever. Like she's, she doesn't get in a hurry really to do anything. Super relaxed, laid back individual. And so we took this thing called the disc personality test. And actually what it said is that if I was going to be an animal, I would be a territorial Doberman. And if she was an animal, she would be a cuddly kitten. So imagine kitten Doberman in the same bed together, like same house, like as you can imagine. Right? Like, though we've had many great memories, it's not always been easy. Um, in many ways, actually, we're celebrating our seventh anniversary on July 25th, so we're still, like, kind of in this thing trying to figure it out. But we've had a lot of great memories, but at the same time, there's been some difficult ones. I mean, there's been times where we've fought, we have argued, and honestly, just ticked each other off. And if you're married, that probably doesn't surprise you. Because you know unless like you're just never around your spouse or you're just kind of coexisting, like arguments are going to happen. Like You know that though marriage can be really awesome, it can also be incredibly difficult. In fact, let me just ask you this. Is anybody in here engaged to be married? Raise your hand. Anybody in here engaged? Oh, yeah, yes, you are. I'm actually doing your wedding. Is that right, in July? Jason and Kelly, that's you? Yeah, we still on? Okay. It's like this would be a weird place to, to break the news. Nope, we got a new guy. Um, so here's what I want you to do, Jason. I know we've already done premarital counseling and all that, but let me give you one more assignment. Here's what I want y'all to do this week, okay? Go out for a romantic dinner, okay? Eat a meal, and then here's what I want you to do. When it's over, Jason, pull out a coin, flip it. Kelly, you call in the air. Jason, catch it, slap it on your wrist, and look at her deeply in the eyes and say, babe, according to statistics, this is the chances our marriage is going to make it. <laughs> Wouldn't that be romantic, right? Now, that's harsh, but according to like divorcestatistics.org and many other sites, like that's how many marriages are failing right now. One in two actually make it. And therefore, we live in a culture where less and less people want to get married. In fact, more and more people that I know are asking like the question, like, what's the point? Like, why should I even bother with marriage? And fortunately, the Bible answers that for us. In Genesis chapter 2, if you look in verse 24... God says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, let me ask you a question, class. 
Did Adam have an earthly mother and father? No. Did Eve have an earthly mother and father? No. So what in the world is going on here when God says in this first marriage, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife? Well, what is happening here is God is wanting to slow us down and say this. This first marriage in human history is meant to be a template for all of the marriages. This marriage right here is not meant to be an anomaly. It is meant to be something that is duplicated throughout human history. Therefore, what we should all stop and ask ourselves, if we are married or we plan to get married at some point or we know someone who's married, we should stop and ask ourselves, okay, well then what is it in this marriage that God wants us to duplicate? And I think there's actually four things. And the first thing that we see in here in verse 18 is that he wants us to see that marriage is meant to be about friendship. In verse 18 The Lord said to Adam, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, that's an interesting statement because if you've read Genesis 1 and 2, everything that God has created up to this point has been what? Good. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 31, it says that God saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. But then God comes with something in his creation and he says, oh, this isn't good. And what is not good? A man standing by himself. A man all alone. Now, why is this not a good thing? Well, in short, the Bible is clear that God created humans in his image. That means that God created us to mirror what he is like, to mimic what he is like to the world. And immediately this creates a problem for Adam because God exists in a web of relationships. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in his image. Now, who's the us? Some people will say, oh, it was the angels. But here's the problem. We're not created in the image of angels. We're created in the image of God. Well, some people say, okay, well, then that must mean there's multiple gods. No, there is one God, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What that means then, and what we discover more as we read the rest of the Scripture, is that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have been in a perfect relationship with one another from eternity past. And so God says, if you are going to mimic me to the world, I want you in a relationship with other human beings. And what does he do for Adam? Think about this. God could have done this any way he wanted. God, in this moment, does not create for Adam a fishing buddy. He does not create for Adam a dog, despite the fact some of you believe like a dog is a man's best friend. No, he, by his design, takes one woman, puts her with one man to live as one life together. This is the first marriage in human history, and we see it is is designed for friendship. Now listen, I'm not saying if you're not married, you will never know true friendship. Okay, I'm not saying that, but if you are married, you know there's something unique about the relationship between you and your spouse and any other relationship that you have. My wife, because I'm in her life every day, she sees me not just whenever I'm at my best, but also at my worst. She knows not only my dreams and my ambitions, she knows my failures and my flaws. And listen, if we are being the spouse to one another God has called us to be, guess what? We love each other in spite of those things. We realize that love, hear me carefully, is not a feeling. Love is a choice. And we choose to love one another in spite of our flaws just as Christ has us. It's a deeper friendship than you can really experience anywhere else when it's as it should be. The second thing we see about marriage is that marriage is not just about friendship. Marriage is also about gardening. Okay, Now stay with me on this. 
in chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, when you think of the garden, do not think like this 10 by 12 spot behind your yard where you grow like okra and purple hole peas. Okay? Rather, what theologians will tell us is that the garden was at the smallest part of the size of a state and at the largest the size of a continent. So immediately this presents a problem because what God just said is, Adam, I've placed you in this large place with all these raw materials and I want you to work it, I want you to till it, I want you to grow it, I want you to flourish it. But it's too big for Adam. So what does God do? He creates the woman. He says in verse 18, I am going to create a helper that is fit for you. Now ladies, listen to me. If you think the word helper is a derogatory term, that's probably because you don't understand what helper means. You probably think that helper means like Adam's personal assistant. That's not what God is talking about here. But actually, the word God uses for helper here is the same title that he gives to his Holy Spirit in the New Testament. What that means then, ladies, is that you share the same title as God when you take on the title as helper. And what did the Holy Spirit help? What did he, what did, how did the Holy Spirit help? How do we see him help Jesus? We talked about this a few weeks ago. The Holy Spirit literally empowered and helped Jesus to fulfill the mission God had called him to. And what God is saying here is, men, you need the woman to help you fulfill the mission that God has given to you. And then a crazy thought. I am so blessed today to have a woman who embraces this. I remember when Megan and I first started dating, I sat with her and I said, um, this was a few weeks after the chicken nugget incident. And I said, look, uh, I firmly believe God's called me to be a pastor. And, and, and if that's not something you want to be a part of, then, then I know you will make someone a fantastic wife someday, but I don't believe you're going to be called to be my wife. Because I knew that God had called me to be a pastor. And by the way, let me say this, men. You need to know what your calling is in life. Some of you men are drifting, and that's why you're so disappointed, you're so frustrated. You have no idea what your calling is. Right, you need to figure that out. Know that as pastors and as missional community leaders, that's why we're here. To know that, that God has given you certain gifts and personalities to use for his glory. Some of you, you feel like your wife is more like your mother than your helper. And that's because you don't have a calling. Right, you need to embrace that. And we want to help you do that. So I share with Megan, this is my calling. And I'll never forget. Here's what she said to me that day. She said, hey, whether you pastor a big church or a small church, whether you're in Africa or Paragould, I'm going to be there with you. My calling is to you. And to help you do what you believe God has called you to. And listen, if you have been blessed at all by Fellowship Paragold, like, know it's because I have a helper. Like, Fellowship Paragold is here because I have a wife who, whenever I went to her and she was pregnant with our first child, I said to her, hey, you know, I believe God's calling us to plant a church. And she said, really? With who? And I was like, I don't know. Like, well, where's your income going to be? I don't know. Where are we going to live? I don't know. And she said, okay, let's do it. Like, that's amazing. That she would put that kind of trust in me. I don't deserve that. But I mean, you're talking about like an amazing amount of help and support I've received from her throughout our marriage. And listen, like ladies, I understand like some of you have incredibly strong personalities. God has gifted you in amazing ways. And I'm not saying that you have to just set all that aside. Like some of you ladies, like you're using your gifts and your personalities for amazing things in the medical field and other places. And that is all great. I'm not saying you have to just like totally like punt that stuff. What I am saying, though, is that you need to make sure that your calling, if you were married, lines up with your husband's. Because if not, listen to me, I'm telling you, it's just a matter of time before the wheels will begin to fall off. If you're here today and you're a teenager, you're a single lady, let me just encourage you. 
make sure that your calling lines up with the man that you want to marry. And if he doesn't have a calling, don't marry him. Single dudes, if you know why God has created you, you know the gardening project he has given you, you know you have a calling for your life, and the girl that you are dating is not excited about that and doesn't seem like she wants to get behind it, don't marry her. I don't care how funny she is, how hot she is. If you do not marry somebody with a mutual gardening project, with a calling, it is just a matter of time before you either get bored because you're not going to give your life anything significant and Netflix gets old after a while. Or you're going to get burnt out because you're going to be pushing and pulling each other in a totally different direction than they want to go. I see it all the time. Marriage is about guarding. It is about a calling that we are to embrace and get her together for the good of creation and the glory of the creator. Third, we see that marriage before the fall is also about sexuality. In verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I used to have a bumper sticker whenever I was, um, that I put on my guitar case when I was in a band. And, and on the sticker it said, God's original plan was to hang out with naked vegetarians in a garden. And it was meant to be kind of silly, but yet there was also some truth to it. Have you ever thought about the fact that God could have created humans any way he wanted? And how did he create them? With or without clothes? Without. You ever stop and just ponder that? How interesting that is? God created the first man and the first woman to be naked And not just naked, he gave the male, male parts, and the female, female parts. And then he created sex for them to engage in. we got to get that because I think some of us, like, we have this idea that, like, God created them with clothes on. He turns away. He comes back from running errands, and he finds Adam and Eve, like, naked and fooling around with each other. And it's like, huh! Like, that's not what those are for! Like, what are y'all doing? You know, like, don't do that! Like, I mean, like, we had this view of God... That he's like anti-sex or he's thrown off by it. But the reality is, and we'll talk a whole lot more about this next week, God is very pro-sex. And if you don't believe that, read the Song of Songs. You realize like Orthodox Jewish boys still cannot read the the Song of Songs to this day until they're 30 years old. I'm going to read the Song of Songs next week some. So if you're Orthodox Jew and you're below 30, you might not want to come. And so... um, We were created by God as sexual beings, to have sex, we'll talk about more next week, within the boundaries of marriage. Sex is a powerful symbol of the covenant that we are committing to one another as a husband and wife. It is also a bonding agent for the intimacy that we share together. Sex, we have to understand, is not gross, nor is sex God. Sex is not gross. I mean, like, we shouldn't be ashamed of it. We shouldn't be like, we can't talk to our kids about it. Like, it's just like, nor is it God, meaning that we have to do it in order to be happy. Right? Like Jesus was a single man. He never had sex, and yet he was the most joy-filled human being to ever walk the face of the earth. You don't have to have sex to be happy. But listen, and I'll stop here. If you are married, God commands you to have sex. So as your pastor, have sex. And have it often. More next week if you want to come back. Okay. So... The fourth thing that we see is that marriage is not just about friendship and gardening and sexuality. Marriage is also about family. In chapter 1, verse 28, God says to the man, to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, I understand some of you in here, you are not able to have children. And I don't want you to feel guilty about that or ashamed. Don't feel like that you cannot 
uh, fulfill God's purpose for your life because you can't have kids. I understand because of different reasons. Some of you in here, you would love to be able to have children, but you're not able to. And please know, like, I'm not speaking to you and I say what I'm about to say, but for those of you who are married and you are able to have children, let me encourage you, have children. Be fruitful and multiply. And not because kids are going to make your life easier. Parents, do kids make your life easier? No. They will not make your life easier. They will not complete you. They will not make you more fulfilled. So don't buy into the lie like, that's why we should have kids. It's just a circle of life. It's just what you do. Like, No, have children and realize that as it says in Psalm 127, they are a gift from God for you to sharpen like arrows and send out into the world to impact people for God's glory. Like realize you are called to disciple up and raise up your kids to impact people you will never be able to impact. Again, this is what marriage is about before the fall. When we look in the Garden of Eden, we see marriage is about friendship, it is about gardening, it is about sexuality, and it is about family. Now, the problem is, we are not in the Garden of Eden anymore. As we keep reading, what we discover in Genesis chapter 3, that Adam and Eve, they were in this good, harmonious, rhythmic, beautiful relationship with one another and God. And God said, as long as you will listen to me and you will trust me and you will follow after me, things will go well for you. But if you refuse, if you decide to do things yourself, death and destruction will enter. And Adam and Eve, despite God's warnings, despite his promises, deceived by the serpent, we know in Genesis 3, they believed the lie. They knew better how life worked than the God of the universe, the author of life. They disobey God, and immediately we see sin enter into the picture. And where is the first place that sin begins to wreak havoc? In their marriage. We see that they all of a sudden realize they're naked, and they feel shame over it. So they cover each other up, and they run, and they hide. And then in verse 9, if you'll look with me on the screen, Genesis 3, verse 9, it says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the sound of the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I've commanded you not to eat? And the man said, it was that woman you gave me. All right, so he totally just plays like the eight-year-old car. It's the woman you gave me. All right, she gave me the fruit and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And so I ate. Adam and Eve they sin against God, and immediately the first sitcom marriage is born. The man acts like an absolute moron. He's a coward. He's blaming his wife for his own issues. And the wife is also kind of like degrading and kind of like, they're both like basically blaming everybody in the story but themselves. And what we have to understand is now because of this, the Bible is clear that sin has entered into humanity, which means all of us are born fractured. All of us are born fallen because of sin. And what that means is, listen carefully, please. No matter what your marriage, no matter who you're married to, what this now means is that all marriages, in one way or another, will be an uphill battle. There is no marriage in here that you can push cruise control and that thing's going to excel. You have got to work very, very hard to have a healthy, flourishing marriage because we now live in a sinful, fallen world. I know many of you have read the book, The Meaning of Marriage. If you haven't and you're married, I encourage you to read it by Tim Keller. Tim Keller says, every other human being on this planet is a bad match for you on one level or another. 
Because every other human being is a sinner just like you, who struggles with selfishness just like you, who makes mistakes just like you, who has a different personality, a different background, and therefore all of these things come together, they make marriage difficult. I want you to hear this, guys, because some of you, it's like you think if your marriage is difficult, you must have married the wrong We good? Oh, hey. Thanks, Matt. No, you did not marry the wrong person. You just married another sinner. Fights are something all of us will experience. Nobody is immune to this. Do you realize, like, me and my wife two weeks ago, we fought over a table. We did. My wife is a very logical thinker, and we have this little table, like, right when you walk in to our, um, our kitchen, and she looks, and she says, oh, this table, you know what it's great for? It's great to put our keys on. It's great to put our bills on. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I've got more of an aesthetic being. I'm like, no, this is a beautiful table. It's not like to hold stuff. Like, it's to be decorative. And that just began an argument of who's smarter. She's like, you saying I, I don't have aesthetic, you know, I don't know what's beautiful. And I'm like, oh, I mean, you're just not as much as I do, you know. And it's like, we like go back and forth. It's like, you should submit. Like, oh, well, you should stop caring about stuff that doesn't matter in the end. You know, all this kind of stuff. Invest eternally. And I oh, mean, I just can't tell you. Like, we just went at it. And I wish I could say that's the dumbest thing we've ever argued over. But that would be a lie. We have argued over some stupid stuff in the last seven years. Your marriage is going to be difficult. Some of you, man, I, you're, you've got to hear this because I can just see it happening. A year from now, someone's going to come to counseling because they're going to be surprised that they married a sinner. <laughs> Some of you have believed the lie that there is one perfect person out there for you who will fulfill you. Outside of Jesus Christ, that's a lie. In fact, it's ridiculous to think about because even if this was true that there was one perfect person out there for you, don't you know some doofus messed that up for all of us a thousand years ago when he married the wrong person, (laughs) right? So it's like there is not this one perfect person out there for you. We are all broken people, and therefore marriage is going to be difficult. Now the question is then, what's the point of getting married? Why should I do this? Why even bother? And I think the reason why is because in Genesis 3 that we see that mankind is fallen. We see also in verse 15 the great promise that God has a remedy. That God says, I'm going to send someone who's going to crush the head of the serpent who has come to kill, steal, and destroy. And eventually in Revelation 21 it says that he is going to make all things new. And so 2,000 years later, right, what happens? God sends Jesus to live a perfect life we could never live, to die a death that we deserve to die for our sin, and then he rose from the dead conquering sin, death, and hell. So listen, now when we trust in Jesus Christ, no matter how broken or shattered or run down we may be, we can be made new. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul puts it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Amen? The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. This is a great promise that when you trust in Christ, immediately you are made new before God. You receive a new identity. But here's the problem. Because we still have this thing called the flesh, we're tempted to go back to the old that has passed away. We're still tempted to live the way we used to be before we gave our lives to Jesus. And here's the beautiful thing about marriage. Marriage will reveal that nonsense more than anything else. If you are married, you know marriage will reveal your sin more than any other relational context that you can engage in. My wife brings out the worst in me. 
And I mean that in a good way. Like, she reveals my true self. You remember me talking about how a few weeks ago, how upset I was over the sound issues in the building? If you would have came up to me that Sunday after it was over and said, Hey, Jared, how you doing? What would I have probably said to you? Good. Real good, man. Great, man. So glad to be in this building. You know, it's awesome. How are you, brother? But what happened that Sunday when I got in the car with my wife, who had children's ministry that day? How was it today? Awful. Awful. Worst Sunday ever. And then for like the next seven minutes on the drive back to Carriage Hill, she just hears me. And you know what she does? Because she loves me, and probably because she also don't want to put up with it. She says, well, what's it say about your heart? What's going on in your heart right now? I don't want to talk about my heart. I want to talk about the sound. You know? (laughs) It's like, what's going on in your heart right now? And it's like, and and slowly but surely, she begins to confront. Well, it's because... I feel like that reflects on my performance. And if I don't perform well, then people's going to leave. And then that's going to make me less of a man. All that, I mean, she began to make me confront the sinfulness of my own life in a way that like none of you were able to do that Sunday. And, and not just as God used the good stuff in her life, he uses the bad, sinful stuff in her life to make me more like Christ. If one of you sin against me today, or you do something I don't like, you know what I'm going to say probably? Ah, probably just having a bad day. That's ah, all right. If my wife does that exact same thing, you're, this is like, I'm just going to, not really saying this to you, but I'm saying, yeah, I probably would say it. You're being ungrateful. You're lazy. You're this, you're that. How could you? And in those moments, when she sins against me, because I take it so much more personal when my wife sins against me than when you do, I have one of two options. I can either get ticked off and I can sin back, or I can say, you know what? You know why she's doing this? Because she's a sinner just like me. And this is an opportunity for me to not just preach grace to y'all, but to show grace to my wife in this moment. To say, just as God the Father has showed me love and forgives me and shows me grace every time I sin, that's the same type of love I'm to show to her. And you see how in that moment, it begins to make me more and more like Jesus. I begin to embrace more and more this new identity that I have in Christ. This is not easy. Amen? Can we just agree? That is not easy. Most of you are not going to hear this and be like, okay, from here on out in our marriage, the next argument, I can't wait. Like, we're going to get at each other's heart, and we're just going to make each other more like Jesus. It's going to be awesome. Right? Like, you're probably going to be like, do not do it to me what Megan did to Jared. <laughs> this is really hard, but it is also really, really beautiful. Because before I married Megan, you know what I thought about myself? That I'm pretty awesome. I'm pretty stinking holy, at least more holy than you. And then I married my wife, and I realized that I tend to cut people off. And I look down on people who don't work as hard as me or have the same views as me, that I'm self-righteous because I went to seminary and I got a master's degree in theology, and maybe some of you have never even read a book, and I'm like, I'm so smart, right? I tend to hold grudges. My wife has shown me in such a beautiful way, not only my own need for Jesus, but by taking my sin to Jesus, she has made me more and more like him, which means she has made me more and more into the human that God has created me and recreated me to be. Please hear me carefully. Guys, please hear this. Your marriage cannot complete you. 
But if you will allow it, your marriage can conform you more into the image of Jesus Christ. As you are having these conversations and these arguments, if you will take your own sinfulness to Jesus, you will discover slowly but surely, and I do mean slowly, you will become more patient, you will become more loving, you'll become more kind, more gentle, just as Christ. And that will result then, and we're about done, that will result in helping us fulfill what I believe is the ultimate purpose of marriage. And that is making Jesus known to the world around us. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 31, I think we can put this on the screen. If not, I can turn to it. Paul is given a very long um, explanation of what marriage is all about. Do we have that, Ryan? Okay. In verse 31 and verse 32, he's talking about marriage, and here's what he says. He quotes Genesis. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then look at this. Marriage, this mystery is profound. But I'm saying to you that it, marriage, refers to Christ and the church. From the beginning of God's story, marriage has run through the entire thing. The whole story starts with the marriage in the garden. In Revelation, it ends with the marriage of Jesus coming back for his church and taking us to the wedding banquet. And all in the middle is marriage. The Bible says that God's love for Israel was like that of a groom for his unfaithful bride that he continued to pursue. And then in the New Testament, the same thing. The love that Jesus has for the church is that of the bride. And he continues to pursue and continues to love. And then what Paul just said is your earthly marriage is now meant to be a picture of that divine marriage. Your earthly romance is meant to be a picture of that divine romance. And what that means is men, and we don't have time to go into this, we could preach a whole sermon on it, you're to love your wife, Paul says, as Christ loves the church. You might have thought you were getting into marriage just so you could have sex, or so you wouldn't be lonely. Though those are great things. Ultimately, you're in there to love your wife as Christ loves the church, no matter how she responds to you. You're to love her first. You're to forgive her. You're to protect her. You're to provide for her. You're to care for her. You're to lead her spiritually. Ladies, the same passage is that you're to love your husband as the church loves Christ. That means you're to respect your husband. No matter how goofy you think he may be, find something to praise him for and to respect him for. If he didn't take out the trash both times, if he just took it out once, then focus on that. Don't talk about how much of a moron he is to his friends or to your friends. Don't nag him as much as you can. Honor him. Respect your husband. And when this is happening, Paul says, man, it's a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Listen to me. Your marriage is not ultimately about your gratification. Your marriage is about the gospel. Your marriage is about showing people a picture of Christ and the church. Yes, marriage is about friendship. Yes, it is about gardening and sexuality and family. But it is also a context that God gives us to make us more like Jesus and to make him known to the world around us. Now, the question may be, for some of you as you hear this, and we're coming in for a landing, what if that's not my reality? What if that's not true of my marriage? Well, what I would encourage you to do is though I cannot possibly 
try to help your every marriage is different so i cannot possibly like solve everyone's issues right here from the pulpit in one like or two points but what i can do is give you some practical advice and what i would encourage you and your spouse to do is this if you are married begin to dialogue over the following questions and this is something that i've begun to dialogue over with megan this past week since you know the right reasons for marriage start asking the right questions first question i would encourage you to ask is this are we best friends I remember whenever I asked my father-in-law if I could marry Megan and his daughter, and, and he actually took me out to his barn where a bunch of cows were, which I think was like his way of being like, remember, you're the dude that asked me what the difference is between a cow and a bull. Some of you remember that story. If not, kind of inside joke, but anyways, I think it was an intimidation factor. But anyways, we go out there, and, and, and I said, hey, can I marry your daughter? You know what he asked me? He said, do you like her? I was like, well, I love her. He was like, well, I didn't ask you, love her, do you like her? Do you want to be friends with her? It's so confusing at the time now. I totally get it. I totally get it. Are you friends with your spouse? Do you all have date nights? Do you enjoy hanging out with one another? Do you actually talk to each other and not just about like your kids, right? But do you just enjoy hanging out, spending time together? Second question I would encourage you to ask yourself is, do we have a gardening project? And we can't be like each other's gardening project. Like your calling in life is not just to marry your spouse. Like though, yes, God may have called you to do that, the calling is for you to come together and to help cultivate the ground, to grow it, to, to embrace this calling for the glory of God, whatever that may be. Ask yourself, like if we embrace this calling. The third question I would encourage you to ask is, do we have a healthy sex life? And I know it looks different for different people in different seasons and ages, but do we at this stage in our life have as healthy of a sex life as we can possibly have? Ask yourself when it comes to family, are we raising up our kids to be like arrows sent out into the world? Are we doing what we can to help pour into them and show them their need for Jesus? Discipling them and setting an example for them of what it means to be someone who's fallen after Christ. Ask yourself, have we become more like Jesus in the past year? Have I become more like Christ? Have you become more like Christ? And are we making him known through our marriage? And while you're asking these questions, let me encourage you to do this. Do not ask the question, is she a good friend to me? Rather, am I a good friend to you? You see the difference? Do not ask, do you have a calling? But do I have a calling? Do not ask, are you making sex good for me? But am I making sex good for you? Do not ask, are you being the mom that you should be, the parent you should be? But am I being the parent that I should be? You see the difference? Some of you in here, you've gone into marriage for all the wrong reasons. And listen, if you continue to believe the lie that culture feeds you that this is what marriage is about, it's just a matter of time before you become a statistic or at the very least you coexist and are just a really grumpy, mean person. Here's the good news. No matter how jacked up your marriage may be right now, God can redeem it. God can restore it. I don't care how much water is under the bridge. And if you will believe the truth about why God created marriage over time, your marriage will not only look more and more like the marriage we see in the Garden of Eden, but it will help conform you more into the image of Jesus. It will result in your holiness. And as a response, you will then become more happy, and you will together be able to make Jesus known around you. Amen? I'm going to ask our band to come forward, if they will, and... 
In just a moment, we're going to partake of communion. And as we partake of communion, we've got two stations, two in the front and two in the back. And here's what I want to encourage you to do is to remember that the reason God has given us communion, that he has commanded us to take it, is because he wants us to be reminded that though we are an unfaithful bride, he remains to be a faithful groom. That he still loves us with a never giving up, never stopping, always and forever love. And when we partake of communion, we're reminded that he laid down his body, his very life for us, that he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And so even if today we've been an imperfect spouse, we don't have to leave here in guilt and shame today. Because we can rest in the fact that we have been fully forgiven and given everything that we need to follow after him and to be the man and the woman he's created us to be.